The following podcast contains foul mouth language. I'll just fess up. I say the word motherfudger, except I don't say fudge. Look, we don't have Tide Pods in Germany, but we have knockoffs. I use the ones from the German brand Ariel. I'll let you know how they taste. The next episode might be even quirkier than normal. In the meantime, allow me to thank donors Victor Lewis and Lisa Sadler. Both of you, thank you so much for your generosity. It's super helpful. And thanks to everyone who donates or reaches out to let us know about the tendrils of thoughts and ideas that spread out of our show, which is really, really, really cool and rewarding. A special thanks to our two, count them, two patrons, Lara Tokarski and our superfan, Niall Minnelli. You guys are amazing. We're looking to expand our social media presence, but also our community involvement on Patreon, so one of our student producers is taking over those tasks. Look for other material from us on Twitter, Instagram, and on Patreon in the near future. If you find yourself excited for each new release of the show and you haven't already donated, then, well, may you end up in a version of Groundhog Day where you eat a German knockoff Tide Pod for dinner every night and wake up the next morning to Maroon 5 music. Yeah. There is one other way you could buy yourself an indulgence for your sins, however. You could go to Apple Podcasts and write a five-star review for A Million Little Gods. And it better be sincere. You do that, then, de inde ego te absolvo a peccatis tuis in nomine patris et filii et spiritus sancti. Amen. There are certain writers who are fellow travelers no matter how far you roam. Around the world and in time and age and phases of your life, of course. But also, no matter how far you travel from the place they once brought you with their words. For a time, you're enthralled with many a good writer's writing. And you were sent to go wherever they lead. Usually, though, the spell wears off and you and the author go your separate ways. You'll always have your gossamer memories, of course. But by the time you look back, the keen author's mind you encountered, or some would say conjured, is far, far away. There are a few writers whose words loiter with me that way. Emerson, Charlotte Bronte, Borges, Iris Murdoch, Walker Percy, James Baldwin, Flannery O'Connor. And one that really stands out? C.S. Lewis. I spent my late teenage years and early 20s following Lewis besotted all over the place. And I've spent the last 18 years or so trying to get away from him. A little like Hazel Motes in Wise Blood. Hello again, Flannery O'Connor. But Lewis's words are always there, waiting for the light to change at the other side of a crosswalk, or I can feel the burn of their stare on the back of my neck while I'm standing in line at the drugstore. Right now, a set of words from his book, The Abolition of Men, are sitting with me. Up to a point, he says, the kind of explanation which explains things away may give us something, though at a heavy cost. But you cannot go on explaining away forever. You will find that you have explained explanation itself away. 
You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It is good that a window should be transparent because the street or garden beyond it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? It is no use trying to see through first principles. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. I still think that's beautifully written. As I say, I've spent the better part of the last two decades thinking that, as easy as his writing went down, Lewis was too patly aphoristic by half. Some rigor and arduousness was missing. His answers were just too easily come by. But this quote still feels profound. Two episodes ago, I explained why I don't like overusing evolutionary explanations of phenomena. Eventually, those explanations will have to explain logical coherency itself. And there's good cause to heed Lewis's warning, I say. But there is another problem implied in Lewis's words that precedes the epistemological one. There is a bent of mind so factious that it can never be pleased by first principles. We're six episodes into this season, and we've yet to remind the listeners of our tagline. A Million Little Gods is a podcast on the consolation of uncertainty. That's a pun on Boethius's consolation of philosophy, of course, but how can you be consoled by uncertainty? What could be more disconcerting than uncertainty? Conservatism could be defined as a desire to protect that which time and culture have consistently deemed true and good. It can happen, though, and manifestly has happened, that through time and consensus, we begin to culturally endow untrue things, or even morally abhorrent things, with the gravity of eternal truth. We need tricksters, yes, maybe even dirty tricksters sometimes, to break the sclerosis of conservatism. But I think there's a preeminent, I might even go so far as to say transcendent, form of conservatism that acknowledges the absurdity of much of human life and accepts that incommensurate beliefs can be simultaneously true, even if it might seem incoherent to hold those beliefs at the same time. Again, we need dirty tricksters, but not for the reasons that motivate the tricksters themselves. We need to be able to see through the artifice of the world because the world is not good and we consistently have to make the world anew. Those who can point out the tricks and illusions being played on us are helpful in blowing up the world. But they are often helpful in spite of themselves. For the mind that sees tricks all the way down is finally nihilistic and can't be consoled.
Aaron Gowan. Eine Millionen kleine Götter. Ich bin Ben Federson. Ich heiße. Yeah. Yo soy Ben Federson. What the? Neko no wafaruka daisuke desu. What does that mean? I love cat waffles. Ew. What is that even? It's the only Japanese phrase I remember because it's the it's completely useless. <laughs> All right then. Well, I need to get something off my chest, so let's get down to business. Uh, so it is a hang-up of my own that I have a certain distrust when I hear the word social construction. I, I, I have an immediate negative visceral reaction over and against that term. Tell me about the first time you heard <laughs> someone use the word social construction. Am I allowed to drink beer while I do this? This is the psychiatrist's office, of course. Okay. Well, Am I French or German? I don't know Austrian? anymore. I don't know. Uh, yeah, no, I don't know why I have a hang-up about this. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, no, I do know why. I, you don't have a traumatic experience that you need to get off your chest? <laughs> no, I don't. It's simply that I, I believe in first principles. I, I believe there are certain uh, – I think you have to acknowledge certain a priori facts that you take to be, take to be, take to be true – in and of themselves. So, okay, there are some first principles. I think, therefore, I am. I'm thinking right now, so that demonstrates that whatever it is that's thinking is. Okay. I mean, yeah, first principles, but again, how does that, well, how is that, that different certain, from social... I think that there, 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 there's a certain kind of social constructionist. I really think that there is. I wish I could call one to mind. Uh, now I have no example. Beat that straw man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to go out and search for, I will find one. But until but until that point, I'm going to just continue to beat this straw man. <laughs> I'm going to burn this straw man. <laughs> Anyhow, but uh, there are there are certain kinds go of social- Guy Fox night on this <laughs> motherfucker. straw man's ass. <laughs> Yeah. All right. So, so get him. I, What's wrong with Mr. Strawman? So this strawman constructionist tries to claim just broad-based social construction for everything. That is just everything is a social construction. What's the most what's the most uh distasteful example you could think of of someone explaining away something that you think shouldn't be or couldn't be? It's a good question. Here's a good one. Time. Why time is a social construct. All right. Well, I'm totally on your... Yeah, but no. See, now we're just... It's the bait and switch again. Right? When you get angry at someone saying time is a social construct, it's you and that other person not using the word time in the same way. Could be. Because Go there on. are elements of time that are clearly a social construct. You couldn't, how could you even argue? Time zones. That's obviously a social construct. The arrow of time, obviously not a social construct. It's a fundamental property of the universe, near as we can tell. I mean, Existence. like. What? Being. Being? Is being is a, being is a social construction? Yeah. Is, I'm having a hard time imagining a straw man so filled with straw that even he could manage to say that being is a social construction. I can. Yeah? Find him. <laughs> Find him so we can kick his ass. Yeah. <laughs>
right then. Social construction being. Social construction of the well-being of young people. Eh. Being is a social construct. Is being a human a social construct? Quora. In quotation marks, existence is a social construct. Okay, Pinterest. A picture of a woman. Biological sex is a social construct. Followed by a man with a gun pointed to his head. E. Why am I even why am I even getting this? Ah. Scroll over text. I watched this and I was lost. I mean soon people are gonna say time is a social construct. Existence is a social construct. And eyes are a social construct. Oh no. I think I'm a Jordan Peterson acolyte. Stupid Google. What good are you? You never did anything for anybody. Why can't you just accommodate my personal biases? Oh well. All right. It's not like there's something implicit in the word social construction about tossing out objectively knowable essences. But I can't shake the feeling that something essential is being thrown away. Here come an author's words again. And this time it's synchronicity. Just yesterday, the official Twitter feed of the Iris Murdoch Archive Project posted a quotation from the article On God and Good, which I haven't read, but this quotation almost feels too on the nose. It is frequently difficult in philosophy, Murdoch writes, to tell whether one is saying something reasonably public and objective, or whether one is erecting a barrier, special to one's own temperament, against one's own personal fears. That hits home. In searching out the article, I happened upon the introduction to Brown University professor Justin Broke's book, Iris Murdoch, Philosopher, and found an excerpt from the last line of On God and Good. There can be no substitute for pure, disciplined, professional speculation. Am I being disciplined and professional in my speculation? Maybe. Anyhow, on the same page, Brooks lays out five headings to summarize Murdoch's ideas for academic moral philosophy. And the first three feel like a better retort that I could give myself. One, a form of moral realism or naturalism allowing into the world instances of such moral properties as humility, generosity, and courage. Two, an anti-scientism to escape the view that the world could be said to contain only what science tells us there is, or what is clearly reducible to that. Three, an anti-Humean moral psychology, rejecting the view that moral action is standardly to be explained as the upshot of belief plus desire, allowing instead, for example, that the perception of a child's need may be enough to explain a parent's attention without our needing to posit an additional desire. Hume isn't the father of social construction, at least he didn't give it that name, 
but he is its prime forebearer. Hume was the ultimate deflationist, positing the social construction of nearly everything the scholastics of the Middle Ages had considered essential was the sine qua non of his entire philosophy. So things like ethical principles and mathematical knowledge, those are just socially useful tools made up by groups of people. I share Iris Murdoch's skepticism of Hume. With regard to morality, I take properties like humility and generosity as empirical facts. The same goes for mathematical truths. I think those are empirical facts too. And there's no need to get around them or behind them by positing that they are socially necessary fictions that communities delude themselves into believing are empirically real. I think they're manifest and not constructed. But here's the rub. Humility and generosity and mathematical knowledge, those aren't the same kinds of things as race. Not at all. So why should I raise a stink about race? Can't I just accept that some kinds of things are social constructs and others aren't? I guess the important question is what? What is socially constructed? That's the question at the heart of the work by probably the most renowned theorist of social constructionism, Ian Hacking. In his seminal book, The Social Construction of What?, Hacking points out what a lot of things get claimed as social constructs. Authorship, brotherhood, the child viewer of television, danger, emotion, facts, gender, homosexual culture, illness, knowledge, literacy, nature, oral history, postmodernism, quarks, reality. Much of the world is constructed, and no one would question that. Money and titles and deeds and things like that. Those are obviously constructed, but... But reality? Sickness? I have a hard time believing that. You've got a tiny, tiny few people at the top of the pyramid who hoard the really advanced... Perhaps kinds of sickness, forms of sickness, how we deal with sickness. But the fact of sickness? I don't know. And facts, for that matter. Are facts socially constructed? And again, reality? In Germany, you know, at the end of the war, and uh, there were 15 Russians. I come around the curb. I didn't know. In the morning, it was our position. And I was looking for an ammunition truck because you run out of ammunition there. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what Hacking maintains that you have to distinguish between an object and the idea of an object. He's hinting at something like a Kantian insistence that we cannot speak of the truly objective world. He leaves more room for us to speak freely about objects than Kant does. But on the other side, he insists that our ideas about objects are more socially contingent than Kant would have wanted. Hacking is 
critical of those who make claims about the construction of an object rather than the construction of the ideas about an object. And he says that it can be more or less hairy to talk about social construction depending on what it is you're talking about. Andrew Pickering and Stanley Fish following him come in for a lot of flack in Hacking's book for maintaining that quarks are real, but that they only have a socially constructed reality like balls and strikes and baseball. That's an absurd analogy, Hacking says. If quarks are real the way physicists claim they are, then they're not just socially real, but our ideas about them are surely socially constructed. The problem is some kinds of objects have a more intimate relationship with our ideas about them. And our ideas about certain kinds of things can slowly change the objects themselves. That's undoubtedly true regarding human kinds. We'll hear echoes, but again... When we're talking, we're not going to okay. be using the recording of you. We'll be using no. our recording, so it's fine. Good. Okay. I actually don't hear myself right now at all. It's better than before. I think, I think Skype I've been in this podcast gig for a little over three years now and change, yeah. and I've never found a great way to record interviews. Um, good. So, sorry, you were rudely interrupted by something. <laughs> we were under pressure to record this one because we realized we needed to focus a little bit more on this idea of social construction. I've tried all kinds of different ways. I've tried the mix-minus. I've used different proprietary pieces of software like Zencaster and CleanFeed and Ringer. They all have some kind of problem. Because nothing else was working this time, we ended up recording our own end like we always do and then having our guest record via Skype. And we noticed a weird phenomenon. Yeah. We could sync up our local recording of our conversation with the Skype recording, but no matter what we did, they would go out of sync again because Skype was somehow compressing time. That is, it's not perceptible to the human ear in the recording. It's not like our guest's voice sounded like the chipmunks or something. But these two seemingly objective recordings of time don't link up. It's a little bit like relativity, according to Einstein. Which, by the way, when you hear the word relativity, you think it's not objective, but actually is an argument in favor of objectivity regarding time. We can adjust our measurements and predict how relative apprehensions of time will be objectively different. So, you know, score one for time not being a social construct. How you were saying, when you got into philosophy, you didn't really know anybody who got you into philosophy, you just sort of happened into it. Yeah, so I uh, I didn't really know anyone who was a philosopher. Uh, I thought um, that it was something fun to study and that eventually, uh, obviously, a person can't have a career as a philosopher so that I would eventually go to law school. But in the meantime... <laughs> the classic story. Studying <laughs> philosophy... Uh, and, uh, and then things just kept working out. And one day I realized, I guess I wasn't going to law school after all. That's Ron Mallon, professor of philosophy and director of the philosophy neuroscience psychology program at Washington university in St. Louis. 
Now that Ian Hacking is retired, he's joined John Searle as one of the preeminent philosophers of science, cognitive science, psychology, and social theory to specialize in social construction. Like both Hacking and Searle, he's careful not to overstate the explanatory power of social construction. Obviously, he comes at social construction from an analytic point of view like most philosophers, but he has other specializations that inform his thinking on the topic as well. I was a philosopher of uh, cognitive science, really, in mind uh, in graduate school. That's how I thought of myself. Uh, but there were uh, emerging uh, topics that were coming up uh, across a number of fields of interest, both in social theory, and, uh, but also in, in cognitive science and psychology about the importance of culture in uh, shaping people's minds and shaping people's emotional responses and shaping uh, human life. And I thought those seemed like they were worth studying and that a lot of other people weren't studying them. So uh, I'm always looking when I'm trying to do work to what uh, distinctive contribution I can make. And it seemed like there was something distinctive to do there. Uh, so that's how I started thinking about social construction and and uh, writing about it. Interesting. So you said you come at it from kind of a cognitive science, if not angle, then sensibility? Yeah, I came at it out of cognitive science and, and philosophy of science. And so in a certain way, that's uh, different, I think, than people who come to the topic, say, out of social theory or social philosophy, and probably explains uh, at why my work is distinctive in the space of work on it. And then uh, other kinds of inroads came up as a result of uh, work in social theory. Uh, people like uh, Anthony Appiah were working on um, the metaphysics of race, and in in the context of uh, the metaphysics of race, uh, people were thinking about social constructionist explanations as an alternative both to uh, eliminativist explanations that said race doesn't really exist, it's all just a big mistake, and uh, biological explanations that said r race does exist, it's real, and it's somehow rooted in uh, differences in human biology among different populations of humans. Although my reading of Anthony Appia is he finds eliminativism regarding race somewhat amenable. Is that not right? No, I think that's correct. I think uh, the, that he is a classic case of a uh, eliminativist, um, and maybe he's qualified and backed away from that position in recent years from as compared to his earliest work but definitely i think he's amenable to eliminativism the thing is is what's what are the alternatives to eliminativism and constructionism about race is one of the alternatives hmm. when did social construction become a thing right right so um i think it the term social construction gained a lot of currency Coming out of the 60s, a couple of reference points would be uh, work by uh, historians and sociologists of science. Someone like Thomas Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolution, people started to think of scientific theory as socially constructed and highly contingent. And there was a book uh, by Berger and Luckman called The Construction of Social Reality, and it became an integral uh, part of what people started calling the science wars, where people were talking about the contingency of scientific theory. And then my read on it is that uh, social theorists, for example, people working in, in 
feminist philosophy or philosophy of race, started talking about um, social construction of human categories out of these uh, these areas. But the, around the same time, people were talking about, in psychology, uh, we're talking about the construction of emotions. So, so the, the terminology kind of moved out of this sort of science wars context into uh, talk about particular human traits or categories of human. Is it okay before we move on if we talk a little bit about this notion of the science wars? I think that um, it's tempting to do a post-mortem of the science wars and to say that that's behind us, but it seems to me like a lot of the debate about things like climate change and vaccines and evolution, I guess, uh, things of that nature, they all partake of many of the same arguments that were used or are used, were used during the science wars. And it seems to me that much of this debate has jumped away from academia and into the public domain. Is that right? Yeah, I think that you're right that some of the dialogue we hear surrounding um, public interpretation of science, maybe conspicuously around climate change, but uh, many other things as well, the way mm -hmm. people dismiss uh, scientific results as, as ideological echoes in certain ways, the science wars. But one of the things that the sociologists of science who were involved in the science wars would have pointed out, I think, is that people have always explained views that they disagreed with or that they thought were errors. They always explained those as sociological. So when you go back and look at some the theory of phlogiston or something, and you say, well, this was false, but why did people believe it? And then you end up falling it back on these historical or sociological explanations. And what they were trying to push for was the thought that uh, the, the historical and sociological causes don't just operate in cases of scientific error. They're always mm -hmm. operating. And so you can give historical and sociological explanations of, of good accepted scientific theory just as well as the, the scientific theory that you dismiss. The section of the interview we're in right now might be familiar to those of you who listened to the first season. If you haven't, consider listening to episode two, Party and Science and Bullshit. We keep talking about the science wars as if this is the Napoleonic Wars and knowing what we're talking about is something everyone should know. But I don't actually know what we're talking about. What are the science wars? Uh, good. So uh, starting in the late 50s and early 60s, uh, a group of historians and then sociologists following them began to offer historical um, and sociological explanations of scientific theory. And then in some cases, they said quite radical things or seemed to say quite radical things about 
what it meant. Um, for example, Kuhn and his more uh, Thomas Kuhn, the author of the Structure of Scientific Revolution, seemed to say uh, that the success of scientific theories didn't uh, improve upon. Uh, previous scientific theories, they just simply changed the topic and changed the rules. And so that instead of this idea that we have, which is widely shared, and uh, that science can aggregate knowledge and build upon itself, Kuhn seemed to suggest that um, it was rather uh, th that scientific revolution was just sort of a marking of a, a change of uh, language game or something where everyone just switched what they were doing and they changed the rules and the old theory seemed wrong by the lights of the new theory, but the new theory would seem equally wrong by the lights of the old theory. And so this gave rise to uh, a lot of debate about the um, historicity and contingency of science and how um, recognizing that affected uh, our appreciation of um, of science and what we think of science as being the most successful epistemic project in human history and how is that consistent with um, with this recognition of its uh, its social character the the motivated character with which theories are often put forth the historical character of it and so forth I have read Thomas Kuhn um, and I always took him to be making a slightly different point which was not so much that the new, I mean, he uses a couple of examples, and the big one is, say, Newtonian classical physics to general relativity. And the point I always took him to be making was not so much that general relativity would have seemed wrong from the point of view of Newton, but rather that he was defending a certain kind of scientific progress that was qualitatively different than simple additive knowledge, right? Not that he's saying that additive knowledge doesn't exist or isn't the way science works, but that at certain you hit certain inflection points where it's beyond additive, it's transformative, it's um, you know logarithmic, or, or however you would want to sort of metaphorically represent that. That the kind of change from classical physics to uh, quantum physics or general relativity um, is a different kind of progress than building a better steam engine. Um, yeah, I'm um, I'm only an amateur Kuhn scholar, and there are people who are much better at this than I am. But um, I think if you look at the progression of Kuhn's thought over time, it in a sense becomes more Kantian in the sense that the the earlier work says some radical things, but is amenable to uh, various less radical interpretations. But as you go on, he seems to suggest that the social or cultural context of the scientist literally constitutes the world for the scientist in the way that the conditions on understanding in Kant seem to constitute uh, the world for the, for, for the agent in, in Kantian epistemology. Mm, that's probably true. I didn't, uh, I don't generally handcuff myself to philosophers because you'll wind your, you'll, tend to find yourself being shoved off a bridge at some point, and at that point you'd really rather be free from committing yourself to any one particular person. Um, but I think it's an interesting point nevertheless, and I think science is a good, maybe a good example to kind of chew on this idea of social construction before we try and make the jump to something a little bit more, a little bit more hairy, maybe. Um, so in what ways is science 
Or could science be understood as socially constructed? Everyone um, thinks now that uh, all kinds of social influences affect what goes on in science. So scientists are just people. They're motivated uh, by personality traits, by personal idiosyncrasies, and by the social context in which they find themselves to produce various kinds of work. They're often um, uh, motivated by rivalry with other labs and other scientists and a lot of other kinds of motivations, no doubt, too, because scientists are, are just humans like the rest of us. And so um, I think people now generally appreciate this and the task in philosophy of science for people who want to hang on to the idea that science is a, a remarkably successful epistemic project is to explain how science can be, can be, can have been so successful given that scientists uh, and labs and uh, groups of scientists are all subject to the same kinds of um, biases and idiosyncrasies and motivated cognition and rivalries as the rest of us are. Uh, and so the, you know, various kinds of theories try to explain why science um, would be successful, even if scientists uh, are subject to various kinds of uh, biases that might, you, you might think would lead them away from the truth. In your book, The Construction of Humankinds, you do your best to lay the epistemic groundwork for social construction, and you note some of the problems that lie in its path. And one of those is namely that if social construction makes too broad a set of claims, or even universal claims, then it could be used to undermine itself because if everything can be socially constructed, social construction itself might be socially constructed. Um, and in discussing this problem, you make a distinction between global and particular construction claims. Could you explain that distinction a little bit further? Sure. This, uh, this distinction between global and local constructionist claims is one that a lot of commentators on social constructionist work make, including Robin Andreessen, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the idea of global construction is just that you take um, everything to be uh, a social construction, and the idea of a local constructionist claim is that you are just making a claim about one specific thing. And so um, where your target is... Um, is theory and uh, where your target is some kind of theoretical entity. If we, what you want to say is everything we believe is a social construction. And when something's a social construction, it debunks it. 
this kind of view is obviously self-undermining since that will be true of the theory of social construction itself. Mm. But if you want to talk about, uh, so there's at least two different things to say here. One is that we might give up the idea that all constructionist explanation of theories is debunking. But another thing to do is to limit our constructionist claims to specific um, topics and entities, uh, either theoretical or um, or something in the world, something that's not just a representation of the world, but in the world itself. And then um, we can talk about the construction of those things, but without necessarily implying um, more global claims. Some of those claims that are easy to make and are completely uncontroversial are things like licensed dog owners or U.S. senators, which are your examples. Um, and you call those things overt constructions. And then you set that over and against covert construction. So help us to see what covert constructions are. Sure. Well, so the idea of a covert construction is just the idea of something, a, 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 that a category of thing that's made up by our social practices, but that we uh, come to view or, uh, or maybe always viewed as not made up by our social practices, as somehow uh, natural or uh, uh, secured by facts that are independent of our minds and our activities. So an, uh, perhaps easy example is the idea of, of kings. Presumably kings were made kings because of various kinds of social practices that led them to be assigned the status of kings and perhaps their children assigned the status of heirs to kings. Uh, but um, then we have ideas like the divine right of kings, mm. which suggests that the, the king is king not because people, uh, that we as a society um, have some social practices, but because there's some independent fact, some fact that's beyond anything we agreed to, which is uh, objective and independent of us, that secures the special status of this person or this lineage. So that would be an example, possibly, of a covert construction. And so the interesting thing, I think, in, in contemporary social theory is to think about claims for example, that gender or race or the emotions or something else, some other kinds of human categories, um, sometimes disease categories, uh, are covert constructions in the sense that we uh, widely take them to be um, secured in some way by natural facts or natural differences among humans, but in some cases, they might be just the result or the consequence of our regarding people uh, differently and categorizing them and representing them differently. Um, I think we're also now moving in the direction of how these social constructions get made, right? How they come into being. Um, and here in our notes, it's marked as there are like two types of relationships between the agents of social construction. So these individuals in a society that do the socially constructing and the things that are socially constructed, that is the, the ideas, um, 
a causal relationship and a constitutive relationship. So what's the distinction being made there? So I, I would want to back up one step and just distinguish okay. between targets of social construction. Um, that is targets of our social practices. So one kind of target is like our theories or representations of the world. And so when we talk about our theories or representations of the world as being socially constructed in the way that we saw in the science wars, then we start worrying about whether those theories are, are true or not and what effect recognition of their social contingency has upon their claim to describe some independent aspect of reality. But a second kind of target of constructionist claims are the things in the world themselves. So we don't just think that our theory of a U.S. senator is constructed or our theory of the licensed dog owner is constructed. We think there really are U.S. senators and there really are licensed dog owners and that we made them up somehow with our social practices. And so this second kind of thing is somehow we, we ourselves as a community are literally creating something which is objective and independent and of, of which there are facts. And then the question is how we do this. And so one kind of idea is that when we um, represent people differently and treat them differently through our social practices, it has various causal effects on them. And that this is what co social construction amounts to. It's a kind of causal uh, uh, process. And a second kind of theory is that our social practices of regarding someone uh, as different and treating them as different themselves constitute them as different. Uh, and so in the case of being a licensed dog owner, for example, you might be really tempted by this constitutive thought that if we stop treating licensed dog owners as licensed dog owners, they would that the kind licensed dog owner would no longer exist simply because the kind is entirely constituted by our practices of differentially treating people in that way. Um, now, you made a distinction there between the objective and the subjective. And I've always, I mean, obviously, there's such a thing as subjectivity. And obviously, there's such a thing as at least the idea of objectivity is intelligible. We know what we mean when we say objective. Um, but I've always felt like there's a pretty obvious, not just distinction between the two, but a pretty obvious gap that it leaves wide open. Um, and I don't know who first came up with the word intersubjective, but I think it's a word that needs to be used a lot more because there is this whole class of things that are not just your opinion. And there yet are, if you, you know, released some virus tomorrow that killed every human being, every sentient being on the planet would stop existing like licensed dog owner, right? So there's this whole class of things that are intersubjective that correspond between multiple subjective experiences. And is the tension between trying to determine whether social, uh, whether social constructions are going from being intersubjective to being objective, or is the concern more about social constructions being either merely subjective or intersubjective? Or is that, as a third option, completely irrelevant question? I think the idea of intersubjectivity is useful. So I think the thing that you're drawing attention to is that in, there's a certain sense in which the intersubjective is objective. That is, it's independent um, 
in, in both of us as individuals in that we uh, as individuals can't just decide that the rules for being a licensed dog owner are different than what they are uh, or the rules for being a U.S. senator are different from what they are. Um, but even as a community, there are specific ways and practices that um, that we have um, that make those things objective. So one uh, metaphor I kind of like is the uh, is that of the Martian anthropologist. So if the Martian anthropologist comes to study humans and they're trying to uh, the uh, they're they're trying to understand all the deep nuances of human life, then if they fail to record the intersubjective facts, then they've clearly missed a huge, what you call the intersubjective fact, they've clearly missed a huge range of um, phenomenon. And that, you know, from the point of view of the Martian anthropologist, the intersubjective things are just another category of objective things. But they're special in that they're constituted by certain kinds of uh, social arrangements or agreements or psychological facts or behaviors or some combination of these. I think it's really important to note that there are certain things that most of us hold to be distinctly not socially constructed. I'll take examples from Paul Boghossian, which I'm getting from your book, uh, but those examples are electrons and mountains, mountains being a kind of leitmotif in our podcast. They just keep coming up. But in any case, those are things that we all assume are not made by us, but rather they impose themselves on us. Um, but there might be certain radical constructionists who would propose that even those things are, in fact, socially constructed. Um, can there be any resolution to this problem? Sorry. So here's a question. Whenever you've got a covert explanation you've got a category of something that people think of as, as natural and independent. And then the constructionist is trying to say that they are um, really, say, constituted or caused by social factors. And yeah, so, and that sounds like debunking, right? And as much as that's the case, it sounds like the, the constructionist is trying to debunk. Yeah, so, sorry. what they think of as a mistaken view of the thing. But that could be a kind of science, right? If you said, oh, look, there is this category and you think the correct explanation of the category is that it's rooted in um, genetic difference or something. But actually, the correct explanation of the category is that it's rooted in some kind of environmental difference, right? That's a kind of science. So it isn't just debunking. It's a replacement of one explanation with another. If it's part of the idea of these putatively natural things to um, be independent of us, then it clearly can't be part of um, – then when the constructionist says actually it's a social construction, what, what enables them to say that? Why doesn't the – if uh, take the term which, for example. This is a standard philosopher's example. And, um, you know, there's this question – do witches exist in uh, in the standard philosophers examples witches don't exist because people have this idea about what witches are and there's nothing in the world that actually matches that idea and mm -hmm. so they don't exist and then you could argue about whether there are people of course uh, uh, alive uh, right now that 
say that they are themselves witches. And so you could argue about whether those people are witches or not. But um, uh, uh, there's this question about how anyone could be a witch, given that no one satisfies the things normally people think of as going with witches. No, no one's riding a broom and flying through the sky, um, for example. So, so one kind of thought, though, that we're familiar with in other areas of science is that science sometimes reveals things to us that um, about entities, and we we come to see that we used to have a wrong idea about them. And so I take it this is what the constructionist is trying to do. Uh, the constructionist about gender or sex, for example, might be saying, oh, well, you, you guys all think that sex differences are rooted in biology or gender differences are rooted in sex differences, but actually they're rooted in um, social facts. So they're trying to reveal something to us about these categories that we already recognize. And the thing they're revealing is something which is really surprising, given what we take the term to ordinarily mean. Uh, but on the other hand, we're familiar with things like this uh, from science. We're familiar uh, from science with the idea that this stuff that um, people have been encountering uh, since before there were humans, which, uh, I mean, you know, since right at the beginning of time there were people, uh, like water, we're familiar that science can come along and say, oh, this stuff that you thought um, had these one properties is actually H2O. And so it can have these underlying properties uh, that we didn't know about. And that's what I take the constructionist is trying to do uh, with uh these constructed categories that they claim are socially constructed. They're trying to reveal that um, fundamentally that, that they are made up of these socially contingent or historical or socially constituted aspects. All right. I think that's all. A, it leads me naturally to ask the question, which is sort of like the, it's like the hot seat question for our, for season two of a million little well, gods, which is, is race, a thing. And you can interpret that however you what you can take whatever angle you want on that question, but I think it leads directly to that question. Is race a thing, whatever that means? Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's perfectly reasonable to think that um race is a thing and I think it's perfectly reasonable to think that the thing is socially constructed. So, um in the context of race, it seems like there are a number of different positions um, about what race really is. There are uh, positions that focus on human biology. There are hum positions that say that race doesn't really exist, uh, that we referred to before. Um, and then there are positions that say race does exist, but as some kind of social kind. And I think the choice between those decisions is in part a choice about how we want to talk about the reality that we find in the world. But I think one of the reasonable ways to talk, and it, not every way of talking is reasonable, but one of the reasonable ways to talk is to talk and regard race as some kind of social construction. That is, in some way constituted by our social practices of representing people as belonging to different races and, and treating them differently, and, and also of ourselves. All right. So I'm 
just want to lay it out that you're on the record as saying calling something a social construction is not the same as saying something is not a thing, right? And isn't that sort of what the this reaction social constructivism usually gets is that the people who are opposed to it say, well, you're just trying to explain something away. You're trying to say it doesn't exist, no, right? And exists. and that's the point is that we're not saying that it doesn't exist or we. I'm not saying anything. A social constructivist is not saying that it doesn't exist. It's saying it's a social construction, which is a particular type of thing. Yeah, so the the terminology of social construction is used in both these ways. Sometimes people say it's a social construction and they mean it's just a social construction. It's not real. But another uh, way of using it and the way I focus on and am interested in and I'm using in this case is to say uh, race can be regarded as a social construction where I mean by that, that race is something real, but that is caused or constituted by our social practices of classifying and differentially treating other persons and ourselves. In your book, you make use of a concept that Ian Hacking developed in his work on social construction, um, namely the looping effect of human kinds. And I think this looping effect is now common parlance in a way among people in, in the meantime. And I think that this looping effect has in some ways become common parlance among the general populace uh, since Ian Hacking wrote his book, which was about 25 years ago now. Uh, but we use a different term. We use the term we use the term feedback loop. But there are some subtleties to the looping effect uh, in humankinds that is slightly different and maybe more insidious than other forms of feedback loops. Could you elucidate that for us a little bit? Sure. So the... Uh... The looping effect of humankind is a nice example where you want to dis, uh, distinguish between this idea of constructing representations and constructing categories. And mm. so I get the essence of the idea is that um, when we construct a representation of a humankind, it can have causal and sometimes maybe constitutive effects upon the world. And that, as you said, there's a kind of feedback loop then between the world and our representational practices, right? Because we, when we're representing the world, we're often trying to respond to the world. We're engaged in an epistemic project in which um, our categories, and sorry, the, the classifications that appear in our theories, uh, we're trying to use to um, map and explain and predict things going on in the world. And uh, because the world is changing in response to our representations, our representations in turn respond to the world. And then one effect of this can be that uh, over time, uh, classifications can become um, more entrenched as, uh, as the causal effects of the representation lead to changes in the world, which further stabilize the representation. Does this effect have to be pernicious? That is, couldn't we just, couldn't this effect happen and lead to not a vicious circle, but a virtuous circle? 
Well, so I think you're right that the idea of a looping effect itself is is uh, just the idea of a certain kind of um, uh, process which need not be pernicious. So you'd expect to find even looping effects surrounding um, totally overt categories. So you know you have a uh, you you have um, a classification that's totally made up, like U.S. senator say, and then you expect that people's ideas about what a U.S. senator is affect the way U.S. senators act uh, and affect the material world. You know, there can be U.S. senator clubs and U.S. senator uh, stationery and U.S. senator mm. typical health problems and all <laughs> kinds of effects in the world and that these can in turn change the theory. Nothing by itself means any of this is uh, pernicious. I think one thing about covert constructions uh, is the idea, the, it's, it's part of the definition of the idea of a, of a covert construction that we have a mistaken understanding of the, of the source or the nature of some category. And so even things that seem like they're beneficial they might um, ha you might worry about this uh, this mistake. So, as an example, um, he, the philosopher Plato uh, in the Republic he he famously put forward the idea that the Republic uh, should uh, be promulgate uh, promulgating the what he called the the myth of the metals. That is, different classes of people in the Republic. He thought the that there would should be a story in which we understand that the people sort of in the ruling class are mixed with very precious metals and the people uh in the in the middle classes should be uh represented as as uh less precious metals uh, mixed with less precious metals and people in the lowest classes would be mixed with the most common metals and the purpose of this story wasn't that it was true it was that it created a story which led people to believe that the social stratification was uh natural and um and so and so that they would be less inclined to question it and it would stabilize the Republic. So, so Plato seemed to think that this was a good idea. And so not only not pernicious, but a wonderful thing because it would <laughs> stabilize the Republic. But when we read back on this now, we, it, it strikes our more modern liter liberal critical sensibilities as sort of um, horrifying that people would, uh, would have the shape of their lives stabilized by something that was a mistake. And so Although we live in that world, right? I mean, that's what racism is. Oh, we definitely <laughs> live in that world. Are you kidding me? That the mistake itself can be a kind of perniciousness insofar as it brings things that we would otherwise might be able to reflect upon and improve upon. It brings them into a space where we think that it's not worth reflecting upon them because uh, it's somehow guaranteed by facts that are beyond our, um, our social arrangements. Yeah, and there does, I mean... There does seem to be a sort of pull, a, a gravitational pull that through this looping effect makes overt categories into covert categories just by virtue of people being born and dying and the sort of the, the intersubjective stability is encountered by the next generation as being an objective fact about the world. Um, so in maybe some sense, there is an inherent perniciousness because these kinds of mistakes are systematically likely to happen. 
Mm. I have a little anecdote that will lead into the next question. So I have a writing class, and for an in-class examination, the students had to read an article um, that was about Facebook back on the 4th of July of last year. Facebook published the Declaration of Independence, and then either some person at Facebook or an algorithm picked out and labeled part of the Declaration of Independence as hate speech because the phrase vicious savages or something to that effect was there in reference to Native Americans. And the upshot of the article that they read was a question, namely, can we judge past authors and people of the past based on the mores we have today? What do you say to that? Yeah, so one thing that we think about think to be true of ourselves vis-a-vis people in the past is that we know things that they don't didn't know. And so we we see them as being ignorant by our lights. And ignorance is often considered uh, some kind of excusing condition for responsibility. Uh, and so th- one question is whether this is really true. Are they ignorant by our lights? Um, of course, and then another thing is, is that they often knew things that we don't know. For example, we think of slavery as being uh, a, a great moral wrong, but most people uh, today haven't ever witnessed firsthand uh, the suffering that slavery um, would have brought about, whereas people who are contemporaneous with slavery might have witnessed such suffering firsthand. So in some ways, people in the past might have been in a better epistemic position than we are to appreciate the wrongness of slavery, even though we uh, uh, we think of them as being in a worse epistemic position in many ways. So I think a lot of the question about whether people are responsible or not uh, depends on, just on this question of how we see their state of knowledge and what we see the available actions to them as being. Like, is it reasonable to expect that a person could have acted differently given what their state of knowledge is? And so I think those are pretty complex questions, and I don't have anything um, very general to say about them. I think sometimes people are excused, and sometimes people are not excused. But I think one thing that thinking about those questions lets us do in the context of social constructionism is think about what's the point of constructionist theory Like, what's the point of someone writing a paper revealing aspects of the construction of race or gender in the contemporary world, revealing that um, something that we might have been inclined to think of as some fixed feature of the world is actually a historically contingent uh, or socially contingent feature of the world? And I take it the point of that is partly to produce in the reader or in the audience of that to produce knowledge of the contingency of the phenomenon that's claimed to be a social construction. And the reason to produce such knowledge is that with knowledge comes responsibility. So, so one of the ways you can see the function of, of social constructionist work is to, uh, is to produce knowledge to, if you like, in the terms of activism, to, to wake people up and to make them see something that they might've taken for granted as something that they can change or that uh, uh, could possibly be changed in any case. And that uh, addition of knowledge um, can produce responsibility, which can uh, produce social change. So even though social constructionism 
uh, engaging in social constructionist research might seem a dry and odd way to try to bring about social change. It's not a kind of political activism or a kind of voting or a kind of marching. Uh, it can be a, 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 a contribution, I think, to such activism in the sense that it, uh, it contributes to knowledge, at least where the constructionist explanation is, is true and successful. Put my kids to bed. All right, here we go. Yo. Hello. Hey, hold on. Quiet. Do you have your, your headset in? Yeah, I do. Uh, I mean, uh, it, it's... Oh, that's good. That's really good. Okay. I can it hold like, it. It sounded like it was... Hold it. It may have been like... Here. All right, then. Are you exhausted? Mm, no, that would be an exaggeration, but I am... Tired. I bet you're exhausted. You, I think you had an exhausting day. Eh, it's okay. <laughs> it's a kind of standard kid day. That's all right. Let's do this thing. Um, all right, so what okay. is this thing? What are we doing? Well, because we recorded this thing in real time, we have a chance to talk about things that are happening like right now. And just this week, Barry Lamb released his new episode of Hi-Fi Nation. And I just felt like it was pertinent to our episode. Uh, he's got this whole thing about predictive policing and um, the feedback loops that happen uh, inside the technology, but not just inside the technology, also in the behavior of the humans, particularly black and brown people and men who are being predominantly caught up by this predictive policing system. And I thought that was just so pertinent to the topic of feedback loops and the looping system in humans, as Ian Hacking and Ron Mallon label it, and that I just thought I'd get your opinion on that. I guess what I would say to that is, in how far has this you know, program of predictive policing changed the way that people do policing, and in how far has it just kind of formalized and made slightly more transparent the way that they have always been doing things? Right? It's like you said, I mean, these feedback loops, they don't just occur in programs. They occur right. in social interactions. Um, and so I think maybe the fact that if you try and put policing in an algorithm, the algorithm starts feeding back on itself in problematic ways. I don't think that's a strike against the algorithm. I think that's something that turning it into an algorithm has exposed about the way that we would ordinarily otherwise also go about policing, which is, oh, I know this guy before. He's in this bad neighborhood. He's bad news. You know, he must have done something wrong. So, you know, if I target him and pick out him for, you know, particular scrutiny, eventually I'm going to turn up something and then I'll throw him in jail and then I'll be reinforced in my, I knew he was a bad guy and other people who I get that feeling about must also be bad. And then, yeah, that's pretty familiar sounding pattern. Of course. I think it just might make it more codified and 
it might excuse behavior on the police side because it gives the sheen of objectivity. Oh, definitely. I mean, I'm sure that's part of the incentive to do it at all, right? Is you need to outsource some responsibility for decisions that are going to be made. Yeah. And however you write your algorithm, you can just load the dice however you need to load them to get the result that you want. Um, but then you can always say, oh, well, it wasn't me, it was the math. And for some reason, that kind of formalization still gets a lot of deference, even among people who should know better, mm. because they're intimidated by the math and mm. the algorithms. And the, but the, it's not actually a complex idea, what's going on. It's no. fairly simple to understand and has a lot of inherent problems. And probably these bad policing habits, it's not necessarily about overturning them, but about kind of protecting them, justifying them in a way that seems mm. objective, even though it's not even close. You know, all of this, I've realized in producing this episode, um, but it's occurred to me that what gets to me about this notion of social construction is I believe in it thoroughgoingly in certain contexts, but things that things that seem clearly like uh, social constructions. So, for example, moral things like courage. I believe that those are nearly empirical elements of the world. Something like spandrels. That is to say, they don't exist the way objects do. But I think that they are, in some way, empirical elements of the psychological cosmos. And, and I don't think you need to try and explain anything behind them. And yet, the social cosmos, the psychological cosmos, that everything that we have as kind of intersubjective experience is shot through with socially constructed stuff. And so I don't like that I can't find where I think the border lies between things that are just empirically true, like virtues. And I don't think you need to explain them in any way. And things that are clearly socially constructed. What do you say to that? I mean, to me, I think, first off, with social construction, I think we should be a little bit more careful on how we parse that phrase. Because for me, it's not so much like, like, let me give you the example of Chichen Itza. You know Chichen Itza? Yeah. I'm probably mispronouncing it, but I don't really speak Mayan. Um, yeah. These big, this big sort of step, step looking, a uh, step pyramid in, in pyramid, yeah, Mexico or wherever it is, Central America. Mm -hmm. And there's two ways to talk about Chichen Itza, right? It's one thing you can say. It's a Mayan construction. It is the product of the intentional <clears throat> application of Mayan hands. So it's a Mayan construction. But you could also say, just as accurately. You could say that it's a stone construction mm, yeah, because it's physically made of stones. It, it consists of stones. Mm -hmm. When we talk about something as being a social construction, I think we should be doing it in that second sense. The social is what makes up this thing. Without, mm -hmm. without any social interaction, this thing would not exist. It could not exist. It's just as Chichen Itza could exist if the stones weren't there being Chichen Itza. All right, man. That's it. Thanks a bunch, buddy. Yeah. Are you... Uh... I'm in for the long haul.
I think I won't be sleeping tonight. You won't be sleeping tonight. All right. Well, no. when you don't sleep, have a good not sleep. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't sleep. If you want proof, I can tell you this. The Patriots won the Super Bowl. Let that be the last time that I ever mention the Patriots on the show. I am a baseball fan. I'm looking forward to pitchers and catchers. Now I've just got to go do some term paper conferences and meet with my colleagues. Then I've got to manage to drive an hour home from Hamburg. And then I can hopefully finally go to bed. You're welcome, people. A Million Little Gods is produced at the University of Hamburg. Writing and production are by Ben Federson and me, although a lot by me. This show was edited by Kai Dyke and me. Thanks for all the help you could give, Kai. You're a mensch. Our other student producers are Julia Appa, Leonie Bauer, Marin Kristoff, Pat Nels, and Anna Pichich. You can still find us online at Facebook.com, although we're thinking about abandoning it because it's Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at AMLG Podcast. And our website is a millionlittlegods.com. Be sure to check in in two weeks for episode seven Categorical Declarative.